Amen. Good morning, church family. We're missing a few of our folks that are normally here. They're at discipleship now at Camp Tapawingo. Sarah's there, and the Lloyds are there, and Andrew's there, and several that we have as regulars. And uh, one kid got saved this week at D-Now, gave his life to Christ, which is incredible. Is it good? I was hoping so. And uh, <clears throat> I wanted to tell you a quick story about it. Then I'll move on with the text. While I'm telling this, if you want to, you can take your Bibles and turn to Luke 18. I would invite you to do that. That's where we're going to be this morning. Uh, kid climbed up, middle school kid, he climbed up the zip line platform, was ready to go down the zip line, been contemplating it all day. And uh, as he stood up there and looked down at how far the drop was, he talked himself out of it more and more. You know how it is when you're going to go do a plunge like that. You just got to get up there and you got to go. You can't stand up there and think about it because you will talk yourself out of it. And uh, he did not go down the zip line, but he did give his life to Christ right up there on the platform. The, the uh, guy from the band there uh, gave him the gospel and led him to the Lord, the praise band for D-Now. So praise God for that. Isn't that amazing? All right. Before I read this text, I need to give you some reminders. Some of you may not have been here, maybe first time or first time in a long time. We have been working through the Gospel of Luke for, I think, a little over a year and a half. It's been wonderful as we've been able to see the themes and, and things emerge and see the Bible in context and Jesus' preaching and teaching ministry in context. It has certainly uplifted my soul. We're going to have a parable today, and I'm always like giddy and excited to preach and teach a parable. But this is no parable is meant to be lifted out and sort of taken on its own. We need the context around it. Two weeks ago, we were at the end of 17. So I just want to give you a reminder, because if you're like me, when you sleep at night, information falls out of your ear into the pillow. If I could figure out a way to extract it out of that pillow and put it back in there, it would be a million-dollar invention, wouldn't it? Uh, but let me just remind you of a couple of things. If you were in Sunday school with us this morning, Coach Bennett reminded us about the coming of Christ and how when it happens, it'll be unmistakable. Everyone will see it. Everyone will know it. It will be 100% clear to all who are there. So he is preaching to us and teaching us this parable on the heels of the return of Christ in the second phase of the kingdom being ushered in. But Jesus in his divine wisdom knows and understands this, that time is relative, right? The Bible tells us in Psalms, a thousand years is a day to the Lord, and a day is a thousand years. Uh, when I was at D-Now this weekend, I did something really dumb. So that kid made a good decision. I made a bad decision. Here was my bad decision. At 41, I decided that I could play basketball with a bunch of 20-year-olds that were in the band. And that was a terrible decision, like, because here's what happened. We came out strong in the first three minutes. We went up four to nothing. And it was that last 25 minutes that killed us, right? Like, it was just rough after that. Uh, you know, and, and I've got to tell you, you know, when we were, like, in it, like, 15 minutes in, three minutes, you know, after you've been playing, like, 15, 20 minutes with a group of 20-year-olds and you're, and you're 41, three minutes feels like three hours, right? It is rough, but... You know, 20 minutes or 30 minutes with my wife at dinner goes by in an instant, right? It's a little bit relative. And a similar thing here with the kingdom of God. For those who are suffering, when, when we are eagerly anticipating the return of Christ, it feels like a long time. It feels as if Christ is not fulfilling. It feels as if you know, you're beginning to wane and wax and lose a little bit of heart. It feels like that play, you know, A Raisin in the Sun that I read in college. You know, they pulled that directly from 
the Old Testament and Proverbs. What happens to a raisin in the sun? You know, what happens to hope deferred? The same thing that happens to a raisin in the sun. Eventually it burst, right? So we don't want to give up hope. So Jesus is saying, yes, I'm coming back. Yes, you will see it. Everyone in the world will understand it. But in the meanwhile, you need some instruction. You need something for your soul to get through what you're dealing with right now. Uh, What I think when I look out over a crowd like we have this morning is we have several categories of people. Some of you may have trusted Christ in the gospel a long time ago. And it didn't necessarily happen overnight, but you have prayed pretty consistently. You have tried to pray prayers that were not self-centered, but were rather gospel and kingdom-centered. And you've tried to do so succinctly. You have prayed for family members. You have prayed for loved ones, friends, and they have not come to Christ yet. Or perhaps you have prayed for healings. You were hoping for physical healings and you thought God was going to do it a particular way and he didn't. And so just slowly over time, some of your hope and some of your heart has eroded to the point to where it feels a bit like you don't quite have the same level of hope as you did when you first came to Christ. So with that in mind, this parable is for you. If you fit in any of those categories this morning, this parable is for you. So let's get into it. Uh, Luke 18, 1 through 8 is on the screens. If you don't have your Bible here, hear, hear the word of God, church. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterwards he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. Okay, that's kind of a weird phrase and I'm going to, I'm going to unpack that in a minute. By her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nonetheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? All right, amen. May God have blessing to the reading of his holy, inerrant, infallible word. And I pray he writes this truth on all of our hearts. Because the grass withers, the flowers fade. Say it with it if you know me. But the word of our God endures forever, doesn't it? That's right. Okay, let's go back to verse 1 on the slide here. Just start at the beginning. He told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always what church? To, what's the first first action right here? To pray. Okay, now, I'm looking in this room. I see a lot of church people here this morning. You've heard a lot of sermons on prayer, haven't you? (laughs) You know how to pray. You've heard a lot of preachers stand up and say, prayer is easy. It's not. It is, but it isn't. Let me see if I can unpack and help you understand what I mean. When I'm talking about prayer here this morning, let me make it very clear what I'm talking about, what I think Christ means here. He's talking about the discipline of intercessory, the discipline of continuing to pray with a kingdom focus. 
of intercessory prayer with a kingdom focus, okay? That's hard. It's hard to keep that discipline of prayer. Let me ask you this question. Do you have a dedicated time every day where you pray, right? Do you have that? Like, I'm going to set aside this time to be a time of prayer, right? The passage says you're to be a people who pray, right? Uh, we just talked about the Sunday school class this morning, but I'll bring it up again. When Jesus was in the garden before the crucifixion, he told the disciples what? He said, I want you to stay right here and I want you to pray, right? And what'd they do? What'd every one of them do? Fell asleep. Let me ask you something. Have you ever fallen asleep while you were trying to pray? If you say no, I don't believe you. You're a liar because everybody who has ever tried to be disciplined in a prayer life Sleep comes on you like crazy. Like I have never seen, like it's almost like some demon somewhere was given a magical sleep lever for every Christian when they are trying to be a part of the discipline of praying kingdom-centered, Christ-centered prayers. Because as soon as you go down that path and you start praying for your friends and family to know Christ, to grow closer to them, you're praying for your church, you're praying for the missionaries we're praying for here, you start down those lists and being disciplined in that and asking God about those things and you will get tired and you will get sleepy and you have to push through those things. So, But it's a discipline worth doing. Any discipline is going to be hard, but it's a discipline worth pursuing. And then the second part here, he says, and not lose heart. You know what's interesting about this, this parable? This parable is unique in Luke in the following regard. Every parable Jesus gives, he gives you the parable, and then he tells you the point of the parable afterwards. What's he do with this parable? He tells you the point of the parable first, then he gives you the parable. So it's like, pay attention, this is what you need to know, here's the parable. So the other thing here he's doing is he's saying what? Be disciplined in prayer. Don't lose heart while you wait for me to come, right? Don't lose heart. What's it mean for a Christian to lose heart? It means they lose hope. They lose hope in the return of Christ. They're, they're losing hope in the gospel. They're falling asleep. That's one of the things we talked about in our Sunday school class this morning. They are, uh, they are neither useful for the kingdom nor very useful for Satan. They're neither doing what they should nor what they shouldn't. They've just lost hope. And I hope that's not you this morning. So now, with the point in mind, so this is that, that's what the greater part of this this parable is about let us now look at this parable this parable has five movements five movements and i'm going to try to move through these quickly the first thing we see here in verse two is we meet the judge and we see his reputation we learn two things about this judge and what does jesus say about him he is someone who does not fear god nor does he fear man (laughs) right he he is someone who what we would classify is a bad or a wicked judge and they're still around. There are judges here in the United States of America that are good judges, and there are judges in the United States of America that are bad judges, right? Uh, so they have, they have existed every generation and every time. This is something that we're all relatable. Anytime we have a parable, it's an earthly narrative conveying deep truth about the reality of the spiritual world, and here it is. We're learning about judges, but we're going to learn something about him. He has sort of a despicable character, right? Uh, look at this next movement here. We have... A bad reputation, and we have a widow's request, right? Tells us here, there was a certain, there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him. All right, let me say a couple things about this. This may not seem odd to you as a 21st century, as a 21st century American, that a widow would go to a courthouse or that a woman would approach a judge, particularly a widow would, uh, would be in a courtroom. This was unusual for first century 
culture, Judea, cultural Judaism, okay? Judges were supposed to uphold the law in the Old Testament. Specifically, what law is that? They're supposed to uphold the law of God. And the law of God, all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, makes special provisions for widows, okay? Uh, most of the time, a widow, to be clear in the definition, is a woman who was married to a man. He dies before there's any kind of children to help take care of her. Okay, so that's kind of the concept that is there. Uh, she is, you know, to stay with her husband's family, she is low on the totem pole. Okay, like she's sort of seen as another mouth to feed, unfortunately, at this time period. And then, but. To go back to her father's house, you know, there's usually an exchange, like an endowry that's given to the husband, gives that to the, to the bride's house. They have to give that back for her to go back to her father's house. So it's expensive to do that. Um, she's another mouth to feed for her husband's family. She does not have a husband to represent her. She does not have a son to represent her or a daughter or a son-in-law to represent her. She is by herself. She is low on the totem pole of society, which is why... You see in the Old Testament that God has a heart for the widow, for the orphan, and for the sojourner. These are all people who in that society of the day would have been seen as the downtrodden and the defenseless. Okay? God has a heart for that. He has special instruction that he gives for that. In the area of law, if a widow came to the law or came to the courthouse, she was supposed to have a priority and was supposed to be given swift justice by the judge. The Old Testament has many laws about that. So she was to be given priority and to, was to be taken care of. But do we have a righteous judge here who respects God's law? No, we do not, right? We have a wicked judge here who every time he sees her uh, is just kind of pushing her to the side and to the back burner and does not want to deal with her, right? So that is the, the second movement there. And that brings us to the third movement, the judge's refusal right you know one thing i want to keep in mind here remember i said there's usually a scoundrel in all the parables and there usually is a hero in this parable who's the scoundrel it's pretty obvious right the judge is the scoundrel right he he is the the, he doesn't fear god he doesn't fear man who's the hero in this parable it's the widow isn't it right it's the widow we're going to talk about why in just a minute okay here we go uh the judge refuses the judge refuses for a while he refused, right? Uh, so he basically tells her no. And what is her response? She keeps persistently pursuing him, right? So I imagine every day he goes to court to handle his cases. And there's the widow. <clears throat> judge, judge, I have a case that needs to be looked at. Judge, please, I have someone, I have an adversary who's costing me money. I don't know that I'll make it much longer. Judge, you know what the law says. Widows are to be given a priority. If we find ourselves in the courtroom, you must hear my case and please deliver justice to me, right? Um, You know, basically what's happening here is um, she is constantly reminding him, right? She will not let it cease. Uh, There's a phrase that we saw, so I was going to come back to it here, and it's actually part of the the fourth movement. First, the judge refuses. He won't hear it. He won't give her the justice. But she is relentless here, right? That she is relentless. Let's, let's see if we can see this down in verse 5. Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, he says, I will give her justice 
so that she will not beat me down. That's an interesting phrase. Uh, it's sort of a, it's a English rendering of a Greek word. Uh, the Greek word is hupopidozo, hupopidozo. And here's what it means. It's the same verb that Paul uses to beat back his flesh in 1 Corinthians. So he's, it is a word that literally means to kind of punch or to beat back. This is what's referred to as an idiom. An idiom is a structure of speech that you use that is sort of exaggerated, but you don't intentionally mean to do physically. So, for example, if you're a preschool teacher, you don't want to tell your preschoolers when they act up, I'm going to throw you through this window. You're frustrating me so badly. Because the preschooler will literally will look at you with really big eyes and be like, are you really going to throw me through the window? Because they have a very wooden understanding of that. Okay, in this particular verse, this idiom in the Greek, it doesn't mean that a widow is going to jump the bar and beat the judge down physically. That's not what this means. That would be kind of fun to see, but that's not what this means, okay? Uh, the judge is saying here, he's using an idiom. He's speaking in terms of an idiom. The closest one we have to 21st century English would be this. Man, tell you what, these kids are wearing me out about buying, getting them a new puppy, right? What does that mean? They will not stop talking about it. They're bringing it up all the time. They won't leave, won't leave it alone. Okay? I, did, I want to tell you about one of the most glorious Christmases of my life when I was a child. Can I do that for just a second? I wore my dad out and my mom both. I was a young man with a need for speed. And I wanted a new go-kart. Had to have it. Had to have it, man. I wanted that go-kart so bad. And this is back in the days before internet. Yes, children, there was a time before the internet, and these were those days. It was a day when Montgomery Ward was stuffed into the mailbox. Remember those Montgomery Ward catalogs and stuff? And they had pictures of go-karts in there. So I'd, get, I'd run to the mailbox anytime there was a newspaper or a sales ad or whatever. If I found any advertisement for go-karts anywhere that I could have, I would cut the pictures out and lay it by my dad's remote. I would sit on the table where he ate dinner. Uh, I would like put it in the car so he would be rummaging through and would find it in like the seat next to him. I would take an opportunity at every dinner to bring up the conversation and pivot it towards a go-kart, right? Uh, if we were out and about somewhere and we happened to pass somewhere that sold go-karts, guess what I talked about? Hey, did you see those go-karts over there? That, was, that would be so neat to have. And eventually... I wore him down, right? And the most glorious thing happened when he brought home that two-seater red go-kart with the five-horsepower Briggs and Stratton, gave me a helmet, and I tore uh, Fire Hall Road and First Baptist Fall Branches parking lot up on that thing, man. It was the best Christmas ever, right? I just wore him out, broke him down over time, and he, it was his joy to deliver that as a good father. With, with a helmet, of course, but he delivered that for me and my sister. You know, it, it was always, you know, it's like he could have said, this is for you and your whole entire school class. I didn't care. I just wanted to get on that thing and ride. You know what I mean? That's, that's what I wanted. So anyway. Uh, so the judge refused here, but the widow is relentless in verse 5. She has uh, broken him down here. Now, and this brings us to the latter part here, the very last part, and that's the judge's reversal. He reverses his decision here. And what does he do? He delivers to her justice. Okay? He hears her case, delivers her justice. Not because he's good. Here's one of the things we see here. Wicked judges will sometimes render just justice and deliver justice in their verdicts. Sometimes good judges will render unjust verdicts, right? It happens as flawed human beings. But God, your Father, 
Our God in heaven, the great high priest and judge, always delivers justice. And while we're on this topic, and this is not the main push of the text, you've already heard it from verse 1. But while we're here on the issue of justice, let me say this. The law is not the law of the moment. Hear me when I say this. The constitution of God's universe, the law is woven into it. You see, God has spoken. There is right and there is wrong. There is just and there is unjust. And it doesn't make something just just because the law says it's okay. Let me give you some examples. There was a point in time in this nation where the law said it was okay to own another human being, but that does not make it just. There was a point in time where you could redline an ethnic group from a particular area to buy property and build, but it was not just. It may be legal to charge a widow an exorbitant amount of fees at a funeral home or at the bank, or at her financial advisor because she has no one else to trust, but it is certainly not just. It may be okay with the law for a pregnant mother to walk into an abortion clinic and to stop the heart of a human being made in the image of God in her stomach, but it is certainly not just. Certainly not just. Every injustice... God sees and He knows and He has a record, right? God sees them all. Will not, then we go to this next verse here. Let's move on. Verse 6. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, right? Look at verse 7. Will not God who gives justice to His elect Let me pause here for just a second. Sometimes people freak out when they see the word elect or the word election in Scripture. Don't freak out. (laughs) This is off the words. This is off the lips of Jesus. There's no need to get upset. In fact, remember the context that this was in. This passage is for you who are struggling with intercessory prayer and to be disciplined in that. This is for you who are losing heart, right? Remember what Jesus said to the disciples? You did not choose me I chose you. Do you remember when he said that? The principle still applies, friend. Well, who are the elect, pastor? What's it matter to you? That's what salvation looks like from heaven. You don't get that part of scripture, right? Here's what your job is in the meanwhile. You need to do what J.I. Packer says and treat all men and women and boys and girls with what's known as the well-meant offer. Because the elect is faithless, faceless men and women. We don't know who's going to come and who's not. So we give the gospel to all. The Bible tells us God's heart. It says that His will is that all should perish, that none should, excuse me, boy, that was bad. What a, man, let me rewind that. It is God's will that none should perish, right? The scriptures tell us that. This is the heart of God, isn't it? And so we should have that same heart. We should leave no one excluded from hearing the gospel and for pleas to turn to the good and righteous judge. So what's the point here? What's the after point? We got the main point in the first part here. What's the after point of this parable? If I had to boil it down, I would simply say this. You know, when we think about this passage, we think about this parable, we see the widow 
one of the most marginalized, powerless people in her culture. All she did was be persistent to get justice, right? Her great powerful tool was persistence, okay? Here's what we need to think about. This is the after point. The most powerless believer, you ever feel that way? Do you ever feel like a powerless believer? I do sometimes. The most powerless believer has two very powerful tools this morning, don't we? And what are they? You have prayer and you have hope in the gospel. And with those two tools, (laughs) well, if just one of those can move a wicked judge to do a just act, what will the two of these together do in our situation now, right? God will always act within His character. And what we're learning in this last part here is God is no wicked judge. God is a good judge. And even if a wicked judge can render a, a wicked judge can render a just verdict, God is just in all of His renderings. God will hear us in this passage because He chose us. He is telling us God answers your prayers completely and consistently because of this salvation He has given you. God will answer because of His promises. He's going to fulfill exactly what He has promised in every regard. Last thing I want to draw out here, and this is actually where I ended up kind of closing at the end of the last service. This last part of the verse here, will He delay long over them? Right? Talk about the prayers of the elect who cry to Him night and day. Will He delay long over them? I don't like this rendering in the ESV. If you have a New American Standard, I like that better. Even the King James, I like better on this particular rendering at the end. This is the action verb here is a Greek word. And just for the lack of time, I'm not going to go over there. But you can look at it later today. It's the same Greek word that's used in the parable of the unjust servant in Matthew 18 at the end of that chapter. And it's the same verb that describes what is happening between the servant who was let go of his debt and he's trying to hold this other servant for a lesser price to what he's owed. And the guy is pleading with him and he's saying what? Have patience with me. Have patience with me. Right? What are we learning about here? Well, I think we're learning about at a minimum this. Aren't you glad God is patient with us? Let me ask you a question. I want you to live in a little fantasy world for me, with me for just two seconds. Imagine if God had no patience. Imagine that if every time you sinned, you immediately received judgment. Every person immediately received judgment every time they sinned. You want to live in that world, friend? I don't want to live in that world, do you? All right, let me expand that out and not make it as, as critical here either. I don't think this is as big of a problem with younger folks as it is sometimes with older folks. Sometimes I hear people that have been Christians a long time as they're struggling to keep hope as the world keeps changing and it feels becoming more acidic towards Christianity and their prayer becomes, come Lord Jesus, come. That is not a wrong prayer to pray, but I sometimes wonder if it's not somehow crouched in a desire for yesterday more than it is for the kingdom to come now. You know... Why hasn't Christ returned yet? Remember what he said in this passage. There's a people that he has chosen that he is saving, right? 
Let me ask you something. What if Christ had returned before you trusted Him? Would you want to have been on the other side of that equation? No, you would not. Christ is, is giving patience to people lost in their sin and giving them time to come to Him. Do you see that in the passage this morning? Romans tells us we should not take those things as a, a forbearance of God lightly, but it is a truth of Scripture. We should be patient with others, and in particular here, I think this passage reminds us, just as God has been patient with us as we sin continually, and as we were sinners before salvation, we should have patience with God as He has patience with others. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank You for this passage. God, we come before You and we are so thankful for Your patience. Help us to be persistent in prayer to be faithful in faith. Justice pleads for condemnation and justice fell on Jesus on the cross. When He returns, He will find faith because we have found forgiveness this morning. Lord, to the Christian who has long endured but hope has been deferred this morning, strengthen their resolve to find peace and patience in you. Lord, for the believers, for those who are far from you and have yet not trusted, not trusted in your completed salvation on the cross, not trusted in who you are, draw them to yourself this morning. Help them to see and understand you and accept this peace and patience that you so richly offer. You are not just a God of justice, but your justice is more than that. It is beautiful. As you right what was wrong, as you draw in close what was once far away, as you make the ugly beautiful, Lord, let us draw to you. In your name we pray. Amen. This morning, it is no mistake, you have found yourself here hearing the gospel preached from Luke, either online or here physically. If you're here today and you've never trusted Christ, don't be presumptuous on his patience with you. Come to him now. Come to him today. Plead with him as this widow in the passage did. Or perhaps you're here today and you're a Christian and you have been wayward for some time. Don't be presumptuous on that patience either. Repent now. Turn to him. Be reconciled to the only good judge and father that you could ever have. Our father above. We, pray these, we ask that you would do this now as we sing. Please stand in response.